Welcome to Healing Lives with Corey Gilbert, a podcast sponsored by the Healing Lives Center. Discover how to love and lead your family well and biblically. God created sex, marriage, and the family for our stewardship, growth, and benefit. My heart and passion is to teach, train, educate, and disciple Christians that want strong marriages and families. The Healing Life Center has been serving Christians since the year 2000. Its mission is to be a center for sex, trauma, and marriage education and transformation, where we offer counseling, coaching, courses, and speaking services to you, your church, or ministry. Check us out at HealingLives.com. Welcome back. Today, I have a wonderful conversation with Tina Davidson. Looking forward to this. So, Tina, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, just totally delighted to be here. I'm coming out of Lancaster, Pennsylvania. That's a little bit of a hike from you. Yes. Uh, but the weather is gorgeous here. We um, we had such a hot, yucky summer, and then suddenly it just became beautiful. So Nice. Yeah. nice, nice. It's a beautiful area of the country, for sure. We just yep. got off a road trip, so... Yeah. So see a whole bunch of the country but right, right. it is it i think it's uh, called uh, the bread basket sometimes this area that's been farmed by the amish yep yeah well you have an amazing story of just your life and all that uh, you've been through and looking forward to today to kind of unpack some of your your life story and then the lessons you can give us uh, which mm-hmm. are the nuggets of 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 what you found in life so looking forward to learning from you today. So tell us a little bit about your your life journey. Well, let me tell you, first of all, give you a little bit of background. I am a classical composer. So I have spent the last 45 years writing music for string string quartets, orchestras, choral, uh, operas, um, out of a classical tradition. So you could write music out of a rap tradition or country tradition. I happen to write out of a classical tradition. Uh, so they're more for concert concert on, uh, ensembles. And recently I just published a book called Let Your Heart Be Broken, hey. like music from a classical composer. And it is about my childhood, some of the traumas. I had some illnesses. Um, and how I, through those and with those, related to music. Now, I have to say, I've been playing the piano since I was, I won't tell you, no, (laughs) over 60 years. Um, And um, my mother insisted, and um, I was a pretty compliant, happy little girl, and I said, okay. And by the time I was seven, I think I started when I was five, And by the time I was seven, I was practicing an hour a day. So I know you can hardly imagine it with today's kids, right? Right. So true. Oh, my God. You can hardly imagine it. Well, we didn't have as many distractions. My mother was a college professor, uh, and she really didn't care that we had friends. (laughs) (laughs) And she didn't like us to watch TV. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we did a lot of reading and we practiced our instruments. Um, I teach piano and composition now. I can't even begin to imagine asking my kids to practice more than a half an hour a day. I mean, that would be a miracle if they practiced a half an hour. But so I got to be a pretty good pianist. Um, and then uh, we lived abroad for a little bit. And then I, I went to college at Bennington College. And that's how I started to compose music. Um, but I want to say that music, I won't say that music was the healer in my life, mm-hmm. but music was a safe haven. Mm-hmm. And actually, I didn't really understand that until I wrote this 
memoir and then started to talk about it. Even when I wrote it in the memoir, I don't think I really understood what a safe place that was. Oh, that's so neat. Uh, so I, I I had some traumas and we can talk about those. So, But one of the effects of those is I could dissociate like mm-hmm. anybody. I mean, you could just look at me the wrong way. And in my mind, I would be out of there. And uh, sometimes they came with really deep depressions. Mm-hmm. But in a funny way, music and maybe even reading intensively as a child or maybe even watching television has a kind of dissociation to it. It You don't have to deal with the outside. You are not connected to the outside. It's this kind of private life that you have. Mm -hmm. Uh, Music is not very tangible. So it wasn't like I had words for it. Certainly when I read, I was like, oh, you know, I had to be in, you know, you know what was happening. But I do think in a funny way that those things like reading or music or even television watching, lots of television watching, game playing for younger kids now is a way of sort of not dealing with any of that, which can be very good and very bad. You know, it depends upon the situation. If you have chaos around you, this might be a really good strategy. Mm -hmm. Um, If you have things that you're not dealing with, it's not a good strategy. So um, just to prep, so I think, you know, that was sort of my relationship with music and um, it grew into a profession and into a a voice for me. Mm -hmm. So you wanted to know a little bit about the backstory. Well, and that the the power of music, Mm -hmm. uh, I think we are losing that. I think we are obliterating the power of music in our culture right now. Like, I hope there's going to be a revival. I hope there's going to be, basically, like we're not raising up musicians either. We're not raising up people that even could write if they potentially had that. They spent all their time playing Xbox or they've spent all their time. So like, to me, this is potentially an art that um, is being, being lost, if you will. But we know that it does something to the whole brain. One of the mm-hmm. things, music is mm-hmm. one of the few things, you know, playing an instrument does some, it, it affects the whole brain where you mentioned like TV watching or even reading a book. It doesn't. Right. You know, it's so interesting. Um, I, my, my beloved uh, niece, when she was 16, tragically got a brain tumor and mm-hmm. I was part of her a year and a half later, I was part of her five week care mm-hmm. and she could no longer talk. But she could sing and she could sing the words. Wow. So where the music is with words is a different place in your brain. And there are a lot of people who have lost language because of traumatic injury or perhaps stroke. I don't know about stroke, but perhaps. um, And they learn through singing. I love that. We do classical conversations. Our home, we homeschool. And they learned all their beginning memory work through song, everything yeah. from math yeah. tables yeah. to history. What a great idea. <laughs> all through song. And so it has been amazing to watch them Wait. watching a movie. Well, it's it's kind of hard in an SAT exam when you go, two plus two, two. <laughs> Yes. Are you singing? <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> well, then our oldest, because it's an experiment, our oldest finally did take the SAT and ACT and he did great. And it's like, okay, good. Yeah. We've passed that barrier. But um, so yeah. you mentioned how with music, like this is a powerful tool and you're seeing it now and you wrote your book, which exposed more to you about the power of it. But go backwards then to your story. Yes. What led to that? So, um, you know, there were a lot of things that led to me writing this book, I think, because I was in my 60s and I really wanted to talk about not only my life, uh, which could be important or unimportant, you know, not, but the thing that I love so much, which is composing music. And I wanted to put words to how I felt about music, what my relationship was and how I wrote music, not like I'm going to take the pencil now and I'm going to write a D. I'm not talking about that, but what I hold in my my head while I'm composing, usually a title, um, how my energy has kind of grown, what I think about melody, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so, but to start with a backstory, um, when I was born, I was born in Sweden. And um, when I was six months old, my mother placed me in a foster home and then uh, she left. And I lived in this foster home. It was a wonderful foster home for three years until I was three and a half. And I was the youngest of three boys. And of course, I was totally adored. Mm-hmm. My mother was Solveig, my father was Torsten, and my youngest brother was almost my age. So we actually, for three years, were brought up as twins. We mm. slept in the same room, we were potty trained, and apparently I was the instigator. I led him into some very naughty things, but that's another story. So when I was three and a half, one day, uh, a young woman came. She was an American uh, professor from the United States. And she adopted me and took me back to America, mm-hmm. where um, I soon then she she actually wasn't married at that point, and she got married, and um, I soon was uh, the older sister of five. Um, but I always, you know, and it's not that anybody treated me any differently. I, I mean, I knew I was adopted. It was never spoken about. I knew my mother didn't talk want to talk to me about it. Um, mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course, I knew my brothers and sisters knew and every once in a while they said, well, we don't have to obey you because you're adopted. You know, you know how kids are, you know, every once in a while, like once or twice that would come out. But I always felt like I was sort of outside of the family. They would talk about family relatives and, you know, your grandfather, you know, fought in the Revolutionary War. And I said, well, I know that it's not my grandfather. But I wish it was, you know, so it was always that sense of not really belonging. Um, and I think and I don't think I'm unusual that kids who are adopted have this sort of secret, precarious sense of life. You know, if I were given up at six months to live in a foster home and then adopted when I was three and a half, anything could happen maybe my birth parents would suddenly come mm-hmm. and you know you know i i had these secret very secret fears about this and it was very clear my mother was not going to talk about it mm-hmm. so when i was 21 i happened to be back in sweden and i was taking care of a, a a daughter of a family friend of mine of our our family 
And um, I was there the whole summer. And just at the end, I, I waited to the last minute. I said, I think I'll go visit the adoption agency. So I called them up and they said, oh, and I always thought it was a Swedish girl. You know, I lived, I was born in Sweden. I was adopted in Sweden. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And they said, oh, no, they never allow Swedish children to be adopted by non-Swedish citizens. You would, they never allowed their children to be adopted outside of the country. They said, well, we don't have anything, but call us back just before you leave. So the day before we left on the flight, I called up and they said, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad you, we have information, come down. And she was sitting there in this office and she had this piece of paper. She said, I'm reading a letter from your birth mother. And she asked me lots of questions about my life in America. And then she said, your birth mother is the woman that adopted you. Your adopted mother and your birth mother are the same. Whoa. And I just Whoa. thought, you mean, it was just like my whole reality kind yeah. of changed. Oh, I had been goodness. living like this adopted child wanting to know where did my, where are my biological roots? What body did I come from? And I was sitting right next to it. Oh my goodness. Wow. Well, you know, I went back and I talked to my mother and she said, oh, you know, she had this illegitimate child. She came up with a story and I said, oh, well, that's great. Let's tell, I said, does, does dad know my stepfather? He goes, she goes, oh no, nobody knows. I said, wow. well, how about I tell my brothers and sisters? She said, nope. I'm... Oh. And, and it was a, a very, very hard time for our relationship uh, yeah. for, for years after that. And so what did I learn? <laughs> Well, first of all, when I write in the book, I say, you know, you are entitled to privacy. Absolutely, 100%. You're entitled to privacy. But a secret that is about someone else can be extremely damaging. Doesn't mean that you tell everybody all your secrets. Right. Or even, that, you know, you have to be very careful. It's sort of like AA. There's this <laughs> time where, where you go and you make amends. There's some people, you know, you don't say to your ex-wife, oh, and by the way, you know, I was having all these girlfriends. Maybe that's not, you know, she's divorced. It's not necessary for her to know that. So, you know, you have to be take care. But a secret like this was um, not only devastating to me, but okay. devastating to the whole family. Absolutely. Do I understand and have compassion for my mother? Yes. Mm -hmm. She was in an awful situation. She yeah. was a young, extremely bright. She had gotten her PhD. She would have lost her job. No question. But it didn't mean that when I was 12 or 13, she couldn't have said to me, hey, honey, let's go talk. Oh, please. Yes. Oh, but did not. Mm. And the trouble with secrets is that the longer you keep them, and they're about other people that you're in relationship with, the more you're edging around this secret, the more it is almost becoming a character in your life. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Maybe even shaping 
um, how vulnerable you'll be willing. You know, you, maybe you, you know, my mother didn't really talk much about her feelings. And so I think it also kept her very quiet about a lot of things. And I think she became more and more paranoid. She, you know, even though time was progressing and she certainly wouldn't have lost her job. Right. She really felt that she would have lost her job. She became more and more. And she really felt that this had happened to her and it didn't have anything to do with me. That's so sad. Mm. And and again, this is, I think. Cultural too. Well, At the I, time. Think, I think that it's, this is why I always come down to emotional honesty. Mm-hmm. The quicker I can get to what I was doing and maybe say it to somebody else. Oh, I realize, you know, that, that, or, or at least have a conversation with myself, like, oh, I could have done that better. Um, You know, I really think that the secret in our family really became kind of a Frankenstein Mm-hmm. That was kind of smashing around. And I write about it in my book about, you know, it's your own personal f- Frankenstein. <laughs> like, just what you didn't want. Yep. <laughs> um, so when my daughter was born, when I was uh, about in my early 30s, and I was holding her, I thought, oh, look at this. I can package up all my upsets and traumas and put it in a beautiful little box for her and put wrapping paper around it and put a beautiful bow and I could just gift it to her (laughs) and it could be her own special gift oh no or I could really get to work Mm -hmm. um and try to be a better version of myself uh less controlled by some of this trauma. Uh, I had pretty severe depressions at that point. Fortunately, they weren't clinical depressions. They were really trauma-induced. So um, I I was very fortunate in that respect. So as I continued working really hard in therapy, the depressions really abated. Um, And I would say by the time, you know, by about 10 or 15 years after I really started working on it, I was completely, I have bad days occasionally or I'm in a bad mood, yeah. but not that kind of depression um, mm. where sometimes I would just slip away for months. Mm. I wouldn't even have a real, the depression would lessen and I would like feel like, oh, I'm awake. Where was I? Mm-hmm. Which was very disconcerting. Yeah. Um but I really started to work hard on trying to understand myself. And then I started, oddly enough, putting that into my music. Not- so you've been writing for years already. I had been reading, writing for about 10 years before wow. I started therapy. And that first 10 years, I have to say the music is a little bit disconnected. Okay. Um, I don't love that the the works in that 10 years um there's some of them that are okay but some i just don't feel i was awake mm-hmm. and then uh when my daughter was born actually i was writing a piece called blood memory interesting yes and so it's that idea of that through our relatives mm-hmm. 
we have a memory mm-hmm. um, and it's called, it's subtitled A Long Quiet After the Call. So there's that sense that that history calls to you. And um, then I just, I started really exploring my sense of trauma. I have a piece called Dark Child Sings, which is a cello quartet, which is sort of allowing my dark, dark little girl or boy, I don't know what gender, it always feels like a little boy, <laughs> um, to, to sing and to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe it was, maybe I felt like a little boy when I was with all my brothers. Yep. Maybe. I just thought too, when you said that. that and was... I don't know. Um, but there were so many pieces that I wasn't trying to write about them, but what the work I was doing and my uh, creativity were like sort of all intertwined. Um, so I would say that the second 10 years was really writing about myself as a young mother, as as a, a woman, as coming out of this trauma. Oh, I have a piece called Transparent Victims, which is for multiple saxophones. And I think it was... Um, uh, <clears throat> sort of that there are a lot of children out there that ha- are victims, but you can't, they can't, nobody can see them as victims. So they're transparent. Um, I have another piece called Requiem for Something Lost. Mm. You know, yeah. So I was writing a lot, lot about that. And if you can see, my titles were always very important to me. Mm-hmm. They have very evocative. Um, and then um, at the end of that second a decade of composing, I started really wanting to write music um, that was really more about my relationship to the outside world or to the spiritual world or to heaven or, uh, you know, I have a very sort of strong connection to what I think you'd call God. I don't call it God, but it's the other. Mm-hmm. It's the the bigger thing. Mm-hmm. Um and so I, I started writing a lot of music about my relationship to that. Um, I have a piece called Celestial Turnings. Oh, I have a piece called a string quartet called The Delight of Angels, because according to Christian and uh, Jewish traditions, the angels would always dance, in con- continually dance in their uh, joy of God that they would just dance and it was just the way that they spoke or were yeah. with God in their joy and their love of God as they just perpetually dance. And I just, I thought that was such a wonderful idea to be in that kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, kind of a, a total relationship mm-hmm. where it's only yeah. one thing. Yeah, um, I like that. Yeah, so that was uh, sort of my exploration of of what it would be to be dancing ceaselessly in the in the presence of the divine. Um, so I, I, it is interesting that you have a Christian following, and um, I do write a lot about my relationship with uh, God, um, although it's not a Christian. You know, I'm not a, a practicing Christian. Um, I have a piece that I wrote recently. Actually, we're going to record it. It's called Barefoot. And it is about 
walking on the earth in your bare feet. Mm -hmm. The analogy is always the burning bush and how you have to take off your sandals to be in the presence of God. Mm -hmm. And there is something very holy about being shoeless, your feet on the earth uh, or in the, in the sand or the dust or the, you know, something that in the presence of God. Um, So that's a a piece. Yeah. For, I think it's for, it's originally for string orchestra, but I think it's a string quartet and piano that we're recording it in. Oh, that sounds so beautiful. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, and one of the things about music and one of the things you're describing even today is I love that you take such care on the titles, but one of my favorite parts of any music is the behind the scenes of why that was written. Mm-hmm. What is the author, the composer attempting to say, portray? I was emphasizing to one of my kids the other day, cause we have our TV, we have surround sound. I love good music. I love my bass. I love, um, <laughs> and, and I was like, this, this movie ended and it had such a majestic music piece and then it squared, you know, it's, it's got bigger and bigger and then done. And I was like, man, imagine that movie without the music score. Because my my boys especially don't pay attention to that. And I'm like, that's just gorgeous. Mm-hmm. The impact of music. Yeah. Um, it, it makes or breaks almost everything. From church services to mm-hmm. music. Or to well, and the community community that you're in commune commune with others while singing is so important yes and oh and harmonies oh i love harmonies oh my gosh have you ever listened to elvis presley do uh uh, male quartet uh bible songs not forever oh they're so beautiful really old-timey nice sounds and his voice oh Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. Music is music does something. Even if we we all have different everyone likes different kinds of music and everyone has their different preferences and tastes. And but it's one of those things that does something powerful. It's neat that you found that young. Mm-hmm. And that yes, you turn it into a profession, but it's it has served a role in your life, leading to the book now. Yes. And leading to even discoveries now of your own story, which I think is incredible. Well, and it's also a passion of mine to teach composition. Um, For many, many years when I was living in Philadelphia, I was going into inner city schools where they didn't have music programs and teaching kids who were in fourth and fifth grade. I I created this whole program called Young Composers. And what we did, I wasn't going to teach them notation. Of course not. But I wanted to, you know, I I got them for 10 different lessons. So usually once a week for 10 weeks. And the goal was that they would create enough music in their class of their own compositions that they perform for the school. Long program, maybe 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes. But, you know, so when I went in and I'd done lots of uh, teaching in schools and I found that they didn't have any musical instruments the school didn't have music programs. So then I said, okay, kids, what do you have at home that we can make instruments out of? They got junk. I said, okay, bring in your junk. No glass, plastic, shoe boxes, cans. 
And, you know, suddenly we made guitars out of shoeboxes and then we made, we glued cans together and they had a drum set. And then, you know, they would have sort of pan flutes out of Coke bottles. Um, and I said, okay, let's write music using graphic notation, which is how do you, how do you draw the sound? You know, if you had to draw a sound like, like a, like a beep, 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 will you, maybe you just have like, you know, and then they would create stories, you know, where they'd have somebody walking in. Maybe it was a haunted house. <laughs> and they would shake chains, but they had to draw it. They had to kind of create a map. Mm -hmm. And then we reduced the paper and I said, okay, now I want you to make symbols of the sound. How long is the sound? How high or how low? And they created these wonderful pieces. And I don't know, I have just such a passion about ensuring that anyone that I'm with, that they get from me that they are creative people. Mm -hmm. And to me as a teacher, that's what I want to teach. Not, I'd love it if you'd become a composer, but more that you value your creativity, that you really believe in it, you trust it. And um, uh, that nobody can say, oh yeah, well, you don't have any creativity. You know, that it's it's like you have two arms, you have two legs, you have creativity. Um, I went to college in music and so I majored in music. Mm -hmm. My heart and passion was music, music ministry. I majored in composition mm -hmm. and then found out my junior year that you have to have talent. And so my professor sat me down and they were like, you're not going to be able to pass your recitals. You're not going to graduate. Um, and, and they loved me enough to not let me fail. Instead, they prepared me. And so I had to find a new, a new adventure, a new, my life, I felt like it ended, but then I, the next semester, I took a counseling class. Fast forward a few years, and I'm in my counseling degree. And they start the practicum with the the picture of the director of an orchestra. Mm -hmm. And to then go into my now 23 years as a therapist, counselor, and go, wow, I the what I'm doing is in a different side of that craft, if you will. I'm not doing actual music. It's other as I work with families. Oh, and that people. music experience, it just totally enriches. I mean, yes. I teach a lot of piano and a lot of cello. I want them to have to become great musicians, but, you it know. It transforms them. Yes. Yeah. And that I'm always telling them that they're in charge of their creativity, that it belongs to them. It's one of their innate uh, gifts. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I grew up in a time where people would say, oh, don't sing. You have a terrible voice. How many people were silenced? True. And um, and I really take offense at that. You know, like, I mean, I love it when people sing and they're off key. <laughs> I think That's what I like about some churches are all about performance. And I don't I don't like that versus the churches where, hey, you know, Aunt Susie wants to get up there and sing and she's got bring it. It's worship. Yeah, yeah no, uh, I, I believe that for myself too. I mean, of course I'm a professional composer and I certainly <laughs> want my performers to be, you Excellent. know, but, you know, but um, I do say I was just up at a festival in Rhode Island 
And these were great performers, but they it was just the last concert of two weeks of performing. They were exhausted. There wasn't quite enough time. Um, and I finally said to them, they were really kind of discouraged. And I said, look, forget the notes. Just forget the notes. Play the music. Mm-hmm. Just play. I said, Celia makes some mistakes. Who's going to know? <laughs> Maybe just me. <laughs> you know, just... And, you know, they went off and practiced some more. And they did, they said to me, they said, oh, we got a little lost. I said, oh, nobody knew. And it was a wonderful performance. It got, a, you know, a, a standing ovation. Nice. I mean, you know, so I, you know, for my recordings, I do expect a, a higher bar. Um, of course. And there's a time and a place for performance and, and perf- near perfection. And you got an audience, maybe even an audience that paid a lot of money. Like there's right. different places for, uh, I, I grew up in South America. And um, if you were visiting the church and you had an instrument with you, it's like, come on up, join the band. <laughs> like right. we never rehearsed one time ever in my whole growing up years. Mm-hmm. And then I came to the United States and it's like, they really rehearsed for everything that was new to me. Okay. We and both wait. are, both are acceptable. So it's just different yeah. settings and different cultures and. I love how you've used music and you've used it to even address that word trauma. Mm-hmm. You've, you've written pieces that seem to be almost therapeutic for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's adre- helped you kind of process how else has that impacted your life and your story up to this point in your life, the different pieces you've written and the why behind them. Right. You know, I want to say, there is something that's really interesting about the arts. And um, I also find it with writing. Um, I get to know myself better when I write it down. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And not only that, I think there's something about, you know, and performing is all about motion. You have the finger motion, you have the bow motion. There's, it's very kinetic. Mm -hmm. And writing or painting is very kinetic as well. And I think that also helps you sort of unlock maybe, I don't know about deeper, but broader. I don't know exactly. Um, I think it's deeper, big time deeper. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The other thing I always sort of laughed about my music, I always thought I was putting myself into the music and the music was really all about me and and sometimes I get a little nervous because I don't want p- people to think that um because not all composers write about themselves right, I, right. you know they yeah. they write all, all different ways but right. for me I am sort of the growing medium I was just writing a blog about how when I was a child my my aunt came back from the lab and she brought these auger plates that have this growing clear growing medium in a little dish and then you put a thumbprint in or you scrape off the kitchen and then you smear it on and and you see what bacteria grows and it's kind of amazing what the invisible looks like mm-hmm. and um i i you know i felt that my music was sort of like that growing medium um so i always sometimes i have this funny relationship with music sometimes like the notes will really behave and they really stay where I put them. And sometimes <laughs> they kind of 
walk away or, you know, I'm like, what are you doing? Um, Sometimes I erase them and they reappear. I do think that's sort of because there is an inner logic for myself and maybe those, that section was cementing part of the, the piece together. And I was taking, um, I'm always amazed when I finished a piece that the piece is almost like instructing me, mm-hmm. teaching me mm-hmm. something about myself. I keep on like thinking that. I'm putting myself in the work, but there is this very reciprocal thing yep. that happens that is just wonderful. And I go, oh, that's the next direction. Oh, And, I and that next piece of then that musician picks up their bow or their instrument to then interpret Mm-hmm. That that's a whole nother connection point because there's the person that can sit there and make it go perfect and it, 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 there's no life. Yeah, and I'm very Versus clear like, about get that. The notes. In classical music, there is this tradition with classical works is that we want to drill down to see exactly what Beethoven was meaning. You know, we want to play it exactly as Beethoven wanted us. <laughs> yeah. And I have a very fluid relationship Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't put those notes there haphazardly. Um, however, I know that when a performer plays that piece, they have to collaborate with it. It's I like not that word. Like, that's a great word, collaborate. Yeah, yes, it's I like that. Like, it's not like I made a suit of clothing and they're struggling to put it on. It's that I. it has to have enough give in it that mm-hmm. they could put themselves in it and inhabit it oh, and make it such their a neat own. picture. That is such a neat picture. And love it that. is that collaboration that I love. And then in a sort of magical way, they have to collaborate with the audience mm-hmm. because the music doesn't exist unless you can hear it. Yeah. And there is something about the performer and the listener. You know, if you play a piece just by yourself, it's so different than when you perform it for others. There is this kind of tension or energy or exchange that happens. Mm -hmm. Um, So I always feel that music is one great big collaboration. You know, I have to collaborate with the notes (laughs) or they, they're saying, yeah, we had to collaborate with her. (laughs) (laughs) And then the music collaborates with the performers and then the performers collaborate with the audience to create this, this sharing that goes on. And that picture you just said, that sharing to me, that is what it's all about. Like I love concerts. Yeah. Good music. And I like all genres. Uh-huh. But uh-huh. like we went my son in his class, he's in 10th grade or was in 10th, ninth grade and now in 10th grade. And, then we went to Portland, Oregon to the 10 Grands. Mm-hmm. So 10 Grand pianos and they had all these different musicians rotating through and other instruments and kids coming up there and performing. And I'm on the edge of my seat. It's mm-hmm. like heaven to me. Mm-hmm. And my wife was there. She she tolerated it. <laughs> like her experience is very different. That's that's okay. Maybe, maybe she got 10 or 15 minutes of it. Yep. You know, but then you know, the way I they interpret whatever it. you get, it's it's yes. fine by me. Um, you know, I'm in it for the long run. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, you're you're deeply invested for the long run. Yeah, and I <laughs> love I, love, I love my profession. I I, you know, I keep on 
wanting everybody to write music or have permission um, to explore it. I remember years and years ago, um, you know, I was a, a young student. I was in some sort of concert setting at some university, and there were these two old professors sitting in front of me. And this was just when computers were starting to become personal computers. And they were talking to each other, and I heard one of them say, you know, this means that anybody will be able to write music because they have a computer. Yeah. Like, it's sort of like anybody can breathe now. <laughs> yes. You've got to be the gatekeepers. No, right, can't let exactly. happen. And so I just feel um, that the more people that find an art form and do the art form, the more connections and more listeners, uh, people who are interested in it. That's, that's I sort of subscribe to uh, an abundance theory. Yep, and not a scarcity theory uh, about. Well, I think because we are, like I said in the beginning, we are in a potential scarcity season where we need young people to stop the Xbox and to be practicing an instrument. Um, they say that a teenage boy, especially from age 15 to 30, the amount of time they spend on some video game, they could be a master master sculptor, master of any mm -hmm. instrument. I think it's 10,000 hours. It's insane. They could. Yeah. So, yeah. and instead we're wasting our times oftentimes yeah. either just consuming or just passive. Well, I think it's interesting because I think that in my generation, a lot of people smoked pot and it was sort of the same effect. They never learned how to relate mm -hmm. because they were kind of stoned. Yeah. And they, you know, they didn't have to deal with mom or with dad or with their girlfriend or with their boss because they were always and, uh, you know, they kind of woke up in their thir late 30s and 40s and kind yep. of said, oh, my God, I don't know how to relate. Yep. So I think, you know, uh, we're having a kind of a different mm -hmm. unrelating, you know, if you're going to spend this much time alone learning to relate with the game rather than with people around you, it does put you at a huge disadvantage in your job, in your marriage, in your community, in your world. Yeah. <laughs> and the why behind what you're doing with your time, mm -hmm. we have a limited amount of time. We do. So to steward that time, precious. it's very precious. If you have a family, what you do with your children, if you have a spouse, what you're doing with your spouse other people that you need to invest in or others that need care, an aging parent or like we, we have a limited amount of time. Our, our purpose is critical, yeah. uh, which I mean, as a college professor, that's my heart is helping my students find their purpose. Right. So some come in and they, yes, they major in counseling psychology and I help them through others. It's like, no, this is not for you. So let's help you figure out where, just mm -hmm. like I had professors that did that for me. Mm -hmm. that led to a different different journey. And um, I love that you've also made the connection of your music to your own story to really actually that word healing. You know, healing is a process, not healed, but healing. Oh my gosh, it's such a process. And you know, a lot of times you work on something, you really get it down, you really figure it out. And that thing that you were working on just changes clothing and gets back in line and <laughs> again and it's like I thought I learned but it's part of this wonderful life 
that that you know it's not a done deal mm-hmm. uh, yeah yeah what's your website is tina davidson.com <laughs> tina davidson.com and you can access music and your books on um, Amazon as well, which is Let Your Heart Be Broken, mm-hmm. uh, Life and Music from a Classical Composer. Yes, Love and that. I'll show you that it's got a great cover. Oh, great cover. Yeah, Love really, that. Really fun cover. Um, so I can I leave you with one thought? Sure, please. Okay. So I was asked by um, a podcaster to put down 10 things of things I wanted to teach, you know, tell other people and this is number, I put down 11. Oh, well, I never was always very good at following rules. So number 10 is, oh, I like number nine. When blocked in your work, take a nap. Nice. The brain like has an amazing ability to solve problems when left alone. Now, okay, that's practical. So number 10, share your joy. Communicate your love of work with others. Share rather than teach motivate rather than lecture, include rather than talk to. Nice. Teaching implies a hierarchy. Sharing is between equals. So share your joy. Love that. Share your joy, yes. Love that, love that. That's so important. As a counselor and as a teacher, that to me is critical, is partnering with my students, not... Infectious. Oh, people get so excited. Yes. Yeah. Share your joy. Love it. Well, Tina, so so great meeting you and talking with you. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I really love this conversation. Well, we'll bless you and bless your future. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Healing Lives with Corey Gilbert podcast. It has been an honor to serve. If you are struggling, have questions, or in need, Dr. Gilbert offers a free consultation for new clients. Check us out at healinglives.com to book a call. If this has been helpful to you, please share it, leave a review, and help us get the word out so that we can see lives changed, marriages transformed, and more people come into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. The Healing Life Center offers online courses, programs, books, intensives, and other services to help you live biblically and well. Discover more resources on YouTube and in Dr. Gilbert's Healing Marriage Facebook group, The Healing Marriage. 